Space Cave. I am David Huntsberger. Let's get right into it. Part two with Matt Candeus. This episode, this podcast in general is brought to you ad-free because of contributions from listeners just like you at patreon.com slash space cave. Thanks to those of you who do support the show. And you can hear convert these whole conversations rather than broken up into parts one and two. You can hear the full conversation early and ad-free in completion uh, in in full at the Patreon page. So thanks again to those of you who do support the show. Here is part two with Matt. All right, back. Filling filling up this delicious Simple Times lager. That was a nice stand, by the way. <laughs> thanks. That was good. Oh, you could hear it. I, I when I was listening, I was like, I didn't fully this the best. Have you ever noticed in movies yeah. when people take a sip, they always do that fully work with the beer where it goes kind of like yeah. that is, that's not the yeah. most accurate, but it just no matter how much they like drink it, it always sounds like they just tipped it over and tipped it back really quick. And it's like right. a, a the, big drop falling in a pop. pond. Yeah, the pop. Yeah. yeah. Ugh, drives I me think crazy. it's one of those like the brain expects more things that are not realistic than are truly the real world, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. Well, I I teased it, I guess, or I I reached out to you because I had been uh, doing a bit of landscaping and f- finding odd things with ivy growing. I think I sent you a photo of the because t- you're like, what type of yeah. ivy? And then, of course, yeah, to me, I was like, oh, right. Yeah, there's probably like a million different species. And I just thought, you know, ivy. I, I just don't know plants well enough to know, like, in my head, ivy no is not like the big umbrella. It is a very specific, which uh, it's not. But uh, this particular I think type... to 99% of people, it is very specific. <laughs> so that's my bad. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was glad to learn that like there's so many different types. And then going along this fence, I did find that there was this other type that it was it was so weird to me that growing up through a chain link fence, so mm. the the main type of ivy that was a real predator would just kind of wind its way through like you would grow. It would mostly, it, it could, it had the ability to do two things. It could wind its way through, or if like a fence or a flat surface presented itself, it would suddenly grow little feet and legs like ah, yeah. a millipede and be like, I am attached now. I'm on this fence. And I thought that's a really bizarre one because- when it's just through the chain link, it doesn't have its little feets. But mm-hmm. then when it's on the fence, it can grow feet out. And then, But then there was this other one that would wind its way up through the chain link fence, and it did it as though someone had taken a needle and crocheted it through. It never missed the back and forth, if that makes any sense. So, you know, mm, like a chain link fence yeah. is in and out and in and It did the same thing. How on earth did this plant know how to go like, I'm going up and left and right and left and right? And, it, and then it would 
grow fairly big, and then it clearly had it had parts of it had died. So it looked like a stick stuck in the chain link fence that was like a curly cue, but really hard. And so that was one type. But the predator type, holy cow, man, that was weird. It, I found it attaching itself to the root of like a pomegranate tree. It took me a while to realize okay. what was going on because you don't know where it starts and stops. Did this thing come into yeah. here or did it grow out from here the other direction? It And finally, like, determining which type of root I was sort of hitting with like a shovel. I was like, this is a vine. But then the vine would grow over and attach to the tree. So then it became very apparent that it was sort of like barnacling itself. It would go under. I should start again. It would grow along the fence. (laughs) And then Ivy kind of hangs off. Almost like an axe. Oops, I fell off. And then it kind of just searches around the ground. All good here? All right. And then it burrows in a little bit or just traverses until it finds something with nutrients. This is my hypothesis, by the way. So you can walk me back through this once you're like, you're way off. But it finds something of nutrient (laughs) value and it it heads that way. And then it's like, I'm aboard. And if no one's there to prune it back or pull it back, it just attaches itself like this gross parasite. But it lets the host still exist looking up. You look up, you're like, ah, the canopy of that tree's relatively normal, but down below, it had eviscerated the natural root structure of this pomegranate tree to the point where I could grab the trunk and just pull it toward me. Disgusting. And then I had to like chop out all the vines and see it smelled bad. It was like gangrenous. It was disgusting (laughs) that the the vines were just working their way to like, we're killing you, friend. And then what's left there is it just takes over. If no one pulls the trunk away, the vine is like, I live here now. I won. I took over. And I, I mean, time-lapsing that or something would be so interesting to see the day when the pomegranate gives way and then the vine is just like, or the ivy is like, I'm the tree now. I'm the tree. <laughs> Look at me. I, I am structure. <laughs> <laughs> I have one now. It's been a long battle. But the pomegranate tree, I think, had five main trunks. And now it's down oh, wow. to two, three, maybe two. But I had to get rid of some of them because they had that gangrenous, gross, yeah. they'd been taken so over. hope. There is hope. And then I felt... There's some hope. Yeah, yeah. They were weak, though. You could push them back and forth, but I, like, trimmed away all the ivy roots. Well, then moving around to another area, I dug this one out like an archaeologist. I was, like, really digging away. (laughs) And you could see the finished product of a tree that hadn't been saved, that the the ivy had done its work and succeeded, and someone had chopped it off so that it was just kind of a, you know, a stump, but the root structure down below... So bizarre. There was one main root that went down, but it's tiny. It was like two inches in diameter. But then like a sentinel or like a jellyfish or an octopus, maybe when it kind of does that squid move going sideways, where all the tentacles are horizontal, that was moving out of the trunk. Horizontal vine type roots going laterally and only just the one two inch thing that went down vertically and so when i excavated all this i was like at some point there was a natural root structure here and then these vines you can see where they swam in like the jellyfish tentacles attached took it over and then someone just cut it down is that close to what happened it was so creepy yeah i mean you're not off base i mean there has been a debate on 
are vines parasites? And I think it's one of those questions where it depends. Um, you know, the parasite has to have like a net negative effect on its host uh, while benefiting, right? And so I think there are sound arguments in some cases. Um, you know, the way you described it is exactly how ivy would be growing. And I would almost guarantee you have, it's, it's all the same ivy. Um, one thing that's really interesting about ivy and a lot of other vines is they're very plastic depending on what they're doing at the time. And what I mean by that is like they, they, they will change their whole structure to suit whatever their strategy is at the moment. Are they foraging for a new structure to grow up on? Are they trying to, you know, like you said, look for nutrients in the soil? That's going to be a different type of growth than, hey, we found a vertical space and this vertical space has a lot of porous structure to it. So, okay, we're going to grow up towards the sun and those feet work because fun fact about the feet they're essentially modified roots. And so what ends up happening is they push up against the surface, they wind out and create this like weird cementy sort of exudate. So they like ooze in a cement and then the root hairs grow into that spongy structure and then they wither and die. And when they wither and die, it just pulls it really tight up against it. So it helps it just like anchor itself. Yeah. Cause now, when you when pull it off, getting into the, uh, oh, sorry. sorry, I was just going to say, when you pull it off, it's kind of a satisfying feeling because it's a pretty thin yeah. vine. It's like a pencil in diameter. So, But it it's challenging. It's like a, a, a sticky Velcro where you're like, get off of that. You pull it mm -hmm. off of there. But it, it, yeah, it is like the adhesive property of it is pretty, it's significant. Yeah, it could do a number on your facade depending on, you know, how old your house is and what it's made of. Um you know, and the other way is just like you said, sort of threading itself. Like it hit that fence, and the fence didn't provide it with like that sort of anchory sort of substrate, and so it's just winding back and forth with those growth tips, and they're responding to like minute differences and like touch. So going back to perception, they can perceive a, a form of touch, uh, and then differences in light. So if the one side gets shaded, it's going to tilt the other way, so it goes towards the light, that kind of thing, and so you're just seeing a. a you really have to admire Ivy for its adaptability and its ability to do everything you just outlined and more. The problem becomes is Ivy is native to Europe and the Middle East. And then we bring it over here and it just has no natural enemies, no natural checks and balances. And it just runs amok. And those poor <laughs> pomegranates have no defenses against this sort of stuff. So it probably just smothered those poor trees, robbing them of everything. I bet like, I don't know how much rain you're getting in that area, but like I would almost bet the ivy absorbs so much of the rain before it can even get to the roots for the pomegranate. Yeah. I mean, it was it was really something to see it as, and I would classify it as a parasite. I started, you know, you, you're around living ecosystems all the time and their natural desire to just live. A kind of a Jeff Goldblum in a Jurassic Park sort of <laughs> <laughs> examination of things at exactly. all time. And I, when I think normal non-science day-to-day um, -day lives are met with that, then the people who experience them go, whoa, this is crazy. But most, I would guess, people that are exposed to that go, yeah, that's just happening at all times. The wolves want to do it. The deer want to do it. Every, every species of grass wants to do it. Some are just better than others. And then that gives you some empathy maybe for humans that we are obviously just an extension of that. And look at us sending... Mm -hmm rovers out to faraway planets i mean that's pretty i mean yeah. ivy would be like oh to dream imagine that friends <laughs> what a day up there. 
<laughs> we got we got a lot of work to do to just build a ship, but yeah. I could see us getting there because the Ivy <laughs> is equally as ambitious. I mean, it's just relentless. It doesn't stop, and it's it's gentle mm-hmm. in how it does it. Like those little fall off the. If you think of like Wrigley Field or something, oh, what the the pageantry. I bet the groundskeepers there are like you, Ivy. I hate you so much because <laughs> it just never stops. It it can die because it has runs out of space to grow within or in and around itself. It kind of suffocates itself yeah. at times. Yeah. So it has to be not also not only is it like parasitic and aggressive and ambitious, but it's also kind of delicate. Like, oops, I tied myself in knots and now I'm dying, and someone has to come kind of take care of it. And groom it and go, here you go, here you go. There's some air and light and room for you to grow back through here. But the way yeah. it grew into that plant or the tree that it took over felt very parasitic to me in that like almost kind of a weekend at Bernie's way where, which if you haven't watched that, how on earth was that ever made? My goodness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that it was like kind of a hit. You're like, ah, oh, just yeah. horrific violence to a corpse. I, I That's what I've been missing from movies. Um, back the good old days. Oh, that's a good old day. They're just bashing into this buoy. They think he's jet skiing. He's hitting them loud rings with his head hitting these metal buoys. Ah, comedy. Anyway, the the ivy kind of does that. It feels like it's sucking away all its nutrients, all its uh, moisture, any type of like content that it. But it's uh, you get to be up there. You're still pretty. Look at you and your leaves. But I'm I'm in the roots here, and I own you now. And there just has to be that turning point where it goes, all right, all right, all right. No more leaves for you. I am you now. I'm the captain. It does seem to take over at some point mm-hmm. because when you trace it up, even if you get it away, there was another tree that I had to remove getting into the bamboo. I removed so much bamboo that I went, there's a tree that lives here. And <laughs> it was like a, a deciduous tree. And, uh, you know, so it had bark and it was it was like a, a vib- vibrant tree with probably, I would say, an eight-ish, maybe 10-inch diameter trunk. So a fairly big yeah. tree. Right. The ivy was making a run at it. It was like it had yeah. made some some headway in the center of its root structure. I was like, man, the ivy is just, it's like gnats. It just doesn't look at something and say, that's way too big. It's just like, give me no. enough time and I'll eventually, we will attach enough tendrils to this thing that will suck it dry and will take it over yeah i mean you got to look at vines as lazy trees that's how i like to think about them (laughs) and the whole goal is to get their leaves as up into them get as much sun as they possibly can get their flowers up to where pollinators can find them and have their seeds where all the birds can disperse them right and so really what it's just it's it's resource foraging right and it's looking for the next support system to climb up and say all right now i own the canopy and this goes back to sort of the whole why does the whole native versus non-native debate really matter and is it wrong to think of things that way and well yeah if you care about ecosystem health you have to think of these checks and balances and when you introduce ivy to a continent like north america where it didn't evolve where there is nothing that utilizes it uh in a way that would knock it back a little bit it gets to take over every tree on your landscape. Whereas, you know, in Europe or the Middle East where it's native, its growth would be a little curtailed. Like insects would be eating it every summer. It wouldn't, not to say it doesn't grow vigorously. Some plants are just bullies, right? But it's it's more likely to not run amok where it has natural enemies and herbivores and things that utilize it versus here where it's like free from all, it's like living in, (laughs) 
a house, right? Like we don't worry about <laughs> a cheetah taking us out anymore. <laughs> we live in houses, right? Yeah. Ah, oh, this Ivy, what a world to be transported here and get your first few days or weeks or months and go, hey, gang, I, I think I think we got something really great ahead of us here. I, I'm not seeing the same sort of obstacles. But here we go. And then they just go yeah. bananas. And I mean, it really is relentless. It is just constantly seeking because from every place where it and it'll root down i kept looking at it as like these motherships it'll move laterally along a fence for a long time and then at some point it'll just root down it'll be like well we've gone far enough there's decent stuff here it'll send something down and then that root can become pretty substantial there was a tree kind of growing out the top of the fence and when i trim back some of the ivy looking for like well this has to go attached directly below it into the ground somewhere it didn't it, the tree had sort of sprouted from the fence going up. So like to your thing where like they don't want to utilize too many of their resources, I think they are like uh, someone in a casino. When they've won enough money, they're like, let's treat ourselves. We're going up. And then they just grow an ivy tree, which is very pretty. Like the blooms and things that it has on it are very unique. But you trace them down thinking, oh, you're a tree. You must go into the earth. And it doesn't. It just goes into the fence and moves laterally. That was pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think like if you do eventually trace it back, it does have a core, but because it's a vine, because it doesn't have to grow straight to support itself, it can lean on things that could be hundreds of feet. And you know what I mean? Like these things can go forever because they're living off subsidies elsewhere, you know, like, yeah, maybe every once in a while they'll throw down a root, but as long as the nutrients are there to build more, I mean, every little tendril they put out leaves on it is more resource capture for them. That's, a, that's so funny. You say, I said that in different terms, but like to my partner, I'm like explaining this enemy. That, 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 there's no root. I, that's why it grows so far along the fence. Every leaf that gets any look at from the sun is feeding the mothership like way back where it roots down. But you have to trace it a long way. It's a pretty, and then the ends of it, the growth tips. What a clever move where, like, if you just gently pull them, it's like, oh, you got me. Oh, you're so strong. I'm done now. You you pulled me right off. Move along. <laughs> and then once it roots down, though, not the easiest. Like, it really take. it has some tensile yeah. strength in those roots where the, the, you know, the ivy's like, I was just bluffing. Those are my tips. My tips are weak. Down here at the core of us, we're strong. Yeah, weak, sacrificial, exploratory <laughs> sort of. It's like sending drones out before the real invasion. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're coming up against what a lot of people are dealing with. With You have a landscape. Someone put the wrong plants there. Wrong plant, wrong place kind of thing. And now it's it's a battle. And, you know, people say, like, oh, we should probably remove the, the war-like terms from it. But it, it, it comes down to a battling sometimes because letting it do its thing, letting it go, you're going to have an ivy yard. You're not going to have a diversity yard. Oh, it's funny you bring up battle. And if that is, um, I don't want to, you know, uh, invoke any things that bring up people's PTSD or make light of actual battles. But I think if we were talking about two, two entities with the will to go in two separate directions, when they meet, there is a battle. There's not a lot of other terms. There's a conflict, we'll say. Mm -hmm. And this particular conflict was really something because I'm unfamiliar with Ivy <laughs> and I'm unfamiliar with runner bamboo. And they yes. came to a head at this corner of the house where it had just been kind of neglected. It was an area where the previous people who lived here weren't out there landscaping or doing much. And it was chaos. 
the the yard had a gentle slope to it and there was a ton of rain last year and it had sent all of the the kind of mulch or anything that had been on that side down to this area and essentially created a compost situation. So the conflict in this particular situation, I feel like, was for those resources, this natural compost, the runner bamboo was heading for it, and the vines from the, or the you know, the, the ivy tips and extension vines were headed toward it. And then they met each other, and I didn't even know where to start with just kind of going in with a rake or a shovel. And the, the bamboo rhizome is like, it looks like a skeletal system. It looks like vertebrae. Or like a spinal cord. You could yeah. hold it up and be like, finish him! And people would be like, yeah, that's a good prop. Where did you get that? It's so creepy. <laughs> and it's so strong. It is like bone-like almost. And so when, and that will go out straight like a spinal cord. But the what comes off from each vertebrae essentially is also pretty strong. And it can create kind of like a manta ray element as far as the surface structure of it even though it's the skeletal element of that. Yeah. And so when I pulled that up, it, it's like pulling a very stiff old garden hose up with a bunch of sticks sticking out <laughs> off of, e you know, going in the opposite direction each way, uh, laterally off each side. And the vines are all tied up in that. It is like they had just run into each other and like, no, and, and kind of headed each other <laughs> off. No one could pass. They had just met at this compost area and so hacking them back from each other and they cut it out, stop it. And then tracing the bamboo back to the clumps and their whole structure, how they grow out was really something. But that battle, I, I don't know how else I would define it. I think it definitively was a battle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got two of the, the biggest classes of bullies in the plant world, the <laughs> ivy and bamboo. I mean, I do not envy you <laughs> in those scenarios, <laughs> but Again, there's 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 the side of me that's the ecologist that's like, oh yeah, getting that under control is better for the environment, right? You choose what you want to do, but the the just lover of plants and just loving of all things botanical and really just admiring how a completely different branch of life has figured out how to make a living, you just have to sit back and hats off to some of those and just look at how plants have like retooled their structures to do different things like those stems underground they're they're literally just grass stems yeah the bamboo is a big grass it's a big grass yeah and so yeah. you could pick How them you like when they're just starting do something different yeah yeah no i mean that the the rhizome so i put in a big barrier because i kind of like it mostly what you just defined i like how it grows i like seeing it operate but i want to cultivate it a little bit and domesticate it and and like a bonsai thing yeah. kind of contain it not torture it. I want it to grow free, but like it had been neglected for so long that the leaves falling down built sort of its its own little weird structure within that raised mm -hmm. the level of the ground four feet. So new wow. like new growths were starting at least two feet off the ground. So to develop like and establish where is the base, where is the ground here? was kind of a struggle mm -hmm. because it is so much had fallen over the years that it had created it like a nutrient rich environment, six inches, 12 inches, 18 inches off the ground. Yeah. And so to just get back to that, like, where do you all start? Let's give you all the same ground floor and you can just reach in and pull the dead ones up because they get suffocated <laughs> a lot like the Ivy. There's just no room for them and they, they get choked off. And so I felt like 
as a grass, it wasn't being the healthiest to itself. It was kind of over over eager, like packing the stage at a concert where it gets risky up against the barriers. Um, but even the old rhizomes, and that's uh, that was a term I learned that like that's sort of like your ant that goes out and just explores, just kind of the scout. The rhizomes yeah. just like I'm gonna go see if there's any nutrients over here. I'll I'll I'll, I'll send something up if I find one, and that's kind of what they do. They just, they can go yeah. underground twenty or thirty feet. There's nothing. There's no water. There's no nutrients. And then you, years ago, threw out an apple core. And just that decomposition there, the bamboo's like, we could do something here. And then it sends up a little, what just looks like grass. It's like four inches, you know, and before you notice it. But that four inches, you can just grab it and just, boop, just pluck it. But if it gets to 12 inches, it's starting to become (laughs) bamboo. And man, it is really challenging. It's so durable i mean that's why they make so much stuff out of it it's a really nice material yeah 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 and when you think of the growth rates for some species i think the fastest growing plant in the world is a bamboo it can grow a meter a day yeah they were saying that last year after all the rain here that's kind of what it was doing it just shot up almost immediately and then all the rain was followed by a bunch of sun and if you take your eye off Ooh, it for yeah. a bit because it'll hold at the same level for a long time and you're like okay it's it's this height you get a bunch of rain and the sun and just woof, just takes off. It's a it's a really cool plant. It'd be a fun one to have like acres of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely whole forests of it, right, in the world, which to me has got to be one of the wildest forests to explore. Like I can't imagine I've been in really big thickets, but I not a bamboo forest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thinking of a panda just gently and quietly going through it. Even the weight of a panda, I mean, you can take six foot, maybe seven foot tall bamboo, like a full grown stock and push it over almost all the way as, you know, it doesn't break. There's such like a durability to it that even a panda walking through is not just going to easily clear a path. I feel like the bamboo would eventually become so dense that panda would be like, all right, all right, all right, I'm not going through. You just have to eat your way out. No wonder pandas are so mellow. (laughs) What a a world, like a video game world. Yeah, just eating all day. Where well, you just having a snack? I'm trying to get out of here. I'm just eating my way home. Yeah, and and bamboo's got its own weird thing. A lot of species. I I can't speak to how many, but there are whole lineages where not only are they that tough and that durable and that aggressive with their growth habit, but they also pump their tissues full of cyanide compounds. So like they're toxic on top of everything else. So it's what? just like again. It's like that scene in Alien where he's just like, it's the perfect organism. You you know, I don't have high hopes for your, your likelihood of survival, but you do have my sympathies. <laughs> <laughs> That's how the bamboo felt. And then I tried to, like we were talking about in, in the first part, you know, how do I not be a jerk to this? How do I relate to the bamboo? Because that can be, you know, keep your friends close, your enemies closer. That <laughs> might relate in some way that way. If I'm just out here beating on this bamboo that's not going to do me any good but studying it and understanding there are vulnerabilities if you're just digging it out there are places where like i called it the clump yeah you know the it, the rhizome would send up one and then it would kind of clump up it'd be a family maybe of like a mound of six or eight stems that would go up and if you get under that again just like the ivy it's kind of an enjoyable release when you when you pop it up, you pop up this whole yeah. stump and you can just rip out six or eight all at once and haul them out of there because they share this kind of like family cluster. 
So that was sort of knowing it, but also the respect there of like, man, that is really well done. And somewhere, I mean, if it's healthy and green, it is so hard to uproot. It's so hard to move. Oh, yeah. Well, I like what you did. I mean, I think you succeeded in that in the sense that you studied it, you you observed it, you admired it, you know, through your curiosity, you learned about how this thing is growing. And like a barrier, if it's a plant you want on your landscape, a barrier is going to stop a lot of that lateral expansion, right? Like it's going to keep it contained in an area where you can manage it a little bit better, where it's not, a, you know, just bulldozing the rest of the plants around the landscape. So like, I, I, I'd like to think you succeeded in your attempt and, and good things came out of you studying this plant. <laughs> well, thanks. I hope so. I had to make some, um, some data analysis moves and that like, well, with this barrier, you know, like I'd love to put it in this deep here. That's not really an option, but from what I've studied, sure. you know, they would say, Oh, they could dig down just naturally. People would put in stone or pour concrete 16 inches down and the bamboo would dive down and go under it. But I wasn't seeing that with this particular <laughs> foe. I wasn't seeing the 16 sure. inches. I was seeing like maybe eight inches max. So knowing my enemy, that being said, like driving around, not necessarily slamming on the brakes, but stopping me like, look at that. That person has bamboo, no noticeable barrier. I mean, they are playing with fire. It'll it'll dive under right. concrete and pop up between the tiniest little cracks. It is relentless and it doesn't need a lot of space. It's their survivor. Yeah. I mean, through like 30 feet down underneath a sidewalk and then popping up at the end of it type I mean, just thinking of that growth tip at the end of 15 feet, moving a centimeter a day or a week, if that, begrudgingly, yeah. like crushed under the strain of a sidewalk, but then a little... All the compaction. Yeah, all that compaction there. And then what what was helping this one is um, a, the tree I was telling you about the that had been try like the ivy had attempted to get after it. Its roots had had grown enough to lift the sidewalk just a little, maybe to give maybe a couple millimeters, mm. a centimeter of space for that rhizome to just be like, that's all I need. And then it just traversed yeah. all the way down. It is just the whole way, 30 feet or so. So impressive. Yeah. And that begs the question, like, what's the perception there? What keeps that rhizome going that direction? Is it picking up on slight differences in like gas exchange in the soil or different moisture levels or nutrient levels? You know, I, I know plant roots will respond to gradients and nutrients, so to speak. You can see some really cool experiments on that, but you know, are all species the same? You know, are what we learn about a, a pea in the lab, is it the same for the bamboo in your backyard, you know, and how do those habits change when conditions change like is your soil different is that why yours isn't diving down like do you have bedrock and there's just so many unknowns and so many nuances to how such an adaptable type of life can make a living you know yeah it's 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 fascinating to think about all of the unknowns i like the unknowns because it's like ah there's a ton of stuff we still have to learn and be curious about and I think for the unknowns, that's you know a variable term based on who's looking at them. For someone like me, it's it's all unknown. Right. And then you know, so it's nice to talk to someone like you. It's like, well, I know this much, but I don't know. You know, it starts to get into these. It would seem areas where no one knows. It's just like you could study this, you could isolate, you could you could replicate this these circumstances a bunch of times, and you might have different results with each one. Maybe you'd have the exact same, just change like the slightest variables, but right. 
you know, you, you'd think, oh, well, you know, life finds a way, but not always. You think of the desert, there is very little water and yes, you'll have sagebrush or something, but in between there, you might just have sand and nothing else. And you yeah. think of the moon or you think of Mars or a place where, oh yeah, it's, it's not always going to work out if you have boiling temperatures and zero nutrients in the soil doesn't seem like a lot of things thrive in that environment. Not to say something can't rise up out of sure. it, but oftentimes we just see you know, like life that is just finds sand. a limit, right? It comes <laughs> yeah. up against them. <laughs> yeah. And this rhizome for the bamboo would like when it was when it was under it, so say you would pull up um a piece of the concrete or something, it's flat. It looks like a snakeskin almost as though it has been beaten. Like I'm done. <laughs> and the moment it pops out of the concrete, it's circular in circumference again. It's like I'm back, baby. I was just faking it. I had to slither through there and get really narrow. And that seemed to me like a magic trick or something. That just seems like, how how is it sending the nutrients needed along this really flattened out, useless little husk of a, a body, for <laughs> lack of a better term, and yet thriving at the end of it? Yeah, yeah, because that stem that's underground, it's being subsidized by the bigger plant behind it now. You know, nutrients dissolved in water can happen at a microscopic scale, but all that growth is subsidized until it is able to pop up and start producing its leaves and give back. And that's like rhizomes bring up this whole idea of like resource foraging. Like plants are literally foraging for for resources and some plants can produce rhizomes, some can't. What are the trade-offs to those different lifestyles? And, you know, are there habitats at least where you tend to see that more? And and usually, you know, you will see a lot of species doing that rhizome resource foraging stuff in really nutrient poor conditions. So dry, rocky soils, sandy soils where things don't hang on as long. But then, you know, there's a limit, right? Because if the main plant isn't stable enough, how much can it truly subsidize the growth of these extra foragey sort of things. So sometimes it could be this function of like, hey, there's enough over here. We're just going to keep in this direction or we'll send some out in this direction. And after this amount, if we don't get what we want, that dies back. And, you know, even within the rhizomatous species, there's a lot of really weird stuff going on. I believe it. And if someone listening is like, wait, wait, what? Rhizome? What? Like, it's not the, the, um, skeletal thing it's not the spinal cord but but it is but but it what i think of it is is like yeah, the search an underground stem yeah just looking like it's just seeking out it just and that seems like it would just be a waste of resources like go look go have a look but it it really does seem to have like a good sniffer to find out where something yeah. i can just feel it i know if i go under this street and all the way over here and the other side there's this decomposing planter bed and we're looking good over here gang and then that seems to be yeah. kind of that's why we think of a rhizome is it's just out there searching, and a lot of a lot of the articles I was reading or, or just like uh, I shouldn't say articles, but in the forums maybe it would be like <laughs> once you sever it, think of it as like a snake, and you've severed off the searcher part of it, the body maybe still is in this area you want to contain and then continue to allow it to grow. If you didn't get all of the rhizome out, but it meaning like you didn't dig it out of the earth. But it's severed. It's not mm -hmm. attached to the colony anymore. You have your barrier between it. The severed, dying rhizome out there and then the colony on the other side of the barrier. You won't see anything. And then you get some rain and it'll start, the dead <laughs> one will be like, I'm still setting up shoots. I'm still trying. You have to pluck them or it can like reestablish again. It can become its own new yeah. colony 
that was that was a pretty exciting thing to be like it just never gives up there's always some it's like a bad guy in a movie like popping back yeah. up <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's again the 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 correlations you can draw the analogies you want to we naturally want to draw between our way of life and a plant's way of life like they break apart really quickly right there's no analogy like that for humans like you can't lose a finger underground and then like well matt will be over there in about two weeks it's just a small <laughs> weird version of him <laughs> but yeah i mean you think of a root the, the that rhizome is kind of like a stemmy root and you know so is a carrot carrot's got a bunch of nutrients in it that's why we eat it so if there's just enough in there and you get the right combination of conditions that it can kind of hail mary throw up another stem you got a clone a, a, an exact copy of the the plant you severed it from yeah, it feels like if humans held hands over 100 feet or yards or miles and the sun shined on one person at the end and gave them a sandwich and then the person on the very other end was like, that's a pretty good sandwich, just from feeling yeah. it. Yeah. It's such a weird thought to be like, good thing we sent out all those people and we just kept, when we felt like we had enough, we could just bring someone else to grab hands and like, all right, we can we can do this. And then another person, and it just keeps growing. Maybe they're in yeah. this situation, it would look more like they were laying down, but still holding hands. But that's kind of how a rhizome looks. It's such a weird right. structure. Human centipeding through the soil. <laughs> yeah. the, the way that it looks like the, the spinal cord or something like that, or the human centipede, the, does it, are, those, are those failed attempts on the side, like laterally? Like the main one moves forward and the side ones go, I'm going to go look, nothing, keep moving. Because they almost look like tank tracks or that's, something when you pull them up. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my guess is sort of, right? And so, again, it being an underground stem, one thing you got to remember is, like, it is a grass, and grasses are monocots. So they you know, they have those parallel veins. I'll spare you the details of, like, but, like, they have a different growth habit than the ivy, which is a dicot. And so monocots, one thing that they have is they have a growth tip. They don't have multiple growth tips. So, like... What you're probably seeing under there are the nodes. And and what all a node is is the space between where one growth was initiated and then the next growth tip. And then it's kind of like leapfrogging. And so I think every because that node is where all of the growth happens in a monocot, you're seeing where either a leaf or a root could go down. And if it's not if that node didn't find what it needed, you know, either sun or nutrients or water. It's let's initiate the next one. Let's initiate the next one. And so it's probably the reason they're so tight together, I would guess, is that, um, you know, they're sampling as they go, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. It's kind of what I had in mind. That makes sense. <sighs> well, this is informative and like, yeah, I don't feel like I was too far off yeah. in my assessment with zero knowledge uh, of it going in or, or even like a, a ground, like a framework to, to operate within looking at it you know to say like oh from based on my <laughs> education i think it's this it was just like kind of pure exposure and then chimp-like deduction yeah i mean to give yourself some credit man like <laughs> you know a lot of stuff you're a very cu curious man and like you you spend a lot of time talking to people like it's it's kind of like the whole dunning kruger it's like i think you're more intimidated by what you don't know but actually have a really good foundation in many, many, many areas. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, speaking of what you're doing, um, you're down in Huntsville, Alabama now, and I think the last time we spoke, you were in the Midwest. So what sort of work yeah. are you doing when you're not being um, 
a field tech for your partner? <laughs> well, I'm still podcasting in defense of plants that comes out weekly, uh, just talking to experts, getting to be the one that asks the questions and be curious. So that's always fun. Um, and I'm just cobbling together different grant-funded projects. I've been working on uh, an oak called the Boynton Oak. It's a critically endangered oak that only lives in Alabama, which is you know big reason why I'm in Alabama right now. Uh, and it's just a fascinating tree that we don't know a ton about. Uh, it also produces rhizomes for an oak. That's kind of weird. Uh, yeah. From where yeah. I grew up. Um, so you'll find a lot of bushy specimens with single stems. Uh, and I've also been working with the American smoke tree. So the Eurasian smoke tree is really common in cultivation. There's a bunch of different cul cultivars and varieties of it. Uh, but North America has its own smoke tree. It's rare. It's not um, assessed as endangered yet or even threatened, but it's one of those data deficient. We just don't know. And North Alabama just happens to be kind of in the center of one of its weird little pockets of, of abundance. And so I've been helping collect seeds and uh, cuttings, rooting cuttings, for instance, uh, yeah. cutting these trees uh, from wild specimens, and then just trying to understand the breadth and health of these populations. Um, again, it's you come up really quickly against no one knows with a <laughs> lot of plants. So it's not that the information's tucked away somewhere. It's just, no, no one really took the time to study this yet. <laughs> so just trying to you know do some rare tree conservation work. So no, like, clocking into a job nine to five, it's in defense of plants and then kind of seeking out grants or presenting, like, here's what I'd like to look at. And so mostly, like, independent in, in your work? Uh, no, I mean, there's always partnerships, right? And it's just meeting the right people and having the network. Like, I work with uh, the Huntsville Botanical Garden and then um, uh, the uh, Davis Arboretum at the University of Auburn. And uh, Patrick Thompson, shout out to him, really great collaborator. He's laid so much of the groundwork on the oak work. So, uh, you know, he's got the contacts of the landowners. He's, he's a local boy, so he's got a lot, of, a lot of people. He knows how to talk to the people and get to the right people and share the right knowledge. So uh, he's been instrumental in it. So cool. But yeah, uh, it's, it's not clocking in per se. It's, it's hoping you get enough money to survive the year and then... <laughs> Hoping you did enough that they'll fund it again next year. Someone else will take notice and we can build off of previous efforts. Yeah. Not not that dissimilar to artistic pursuits. I mean, not to say that you don't look at what you do that way, but I could see where people would maybe not make that correlation. But I think any passion, you know, whether you're in a band or you're trying to study plants, it's kind of the same thing of like, there's not really a charted course all the time. Sometimes you just got to kind of figure it yeah. out and that can be stressful and hectic but it can yeah. also be really rewarding to like you you'll likely chart a course that maybe someone else has not or stumble upon things that you know you're, you're playing a, a melody no one's played or, or finding <laughs> <laughs> more about more out about this plant that no one's really studied before so that's it's got to be fulfilling rewarding yeah i mean it's a hustle and you know adulting's weird and it's weird not being in academia, like I just got so used to being a grad student because you're in it for so many years. And you just kind of, like you said, you have these moments where you're doubting, you're stressing, you're staying up at night going like, I don't know where the next paycheck's coming or how we're going to pay for food or something like that. I mean, again, a partner that is more uh, very established and supportive of it is, is wonderful. But um, yeah, again, it's, you, you never really get told what it's like when you're out there. 
but no one else did either. And so you just start to realize that like everyone is sort of just charting their own course. And the cool thing is, is yeah, you, the, my, my version of creativity is like, okay, what species do we want to work with? What capacity do we want to work with it? What, where can we be most useful? Yeah. I was having that conversation with someone. Re- I mean, that fish is, that always comes up. I feel like in the arts of people second guessing or be like, Oh, this is tough or challenging. And a thing I've leaned back on a lot of times is, you know, I studied engineering and the life I'm living is the version of knowing that there was probably a version of me that could have done that, could have clocked in every day and been an engineer and always tickled in the back of my brain. What if like, yeah, I always wanted to do that thing. (laughs) And so then when you do go do that thing, you, you just, you have an existence where you know that one, you know that route. And so people, I feel like in life are very lucky if you are really into botany and you find a job or a position or a career that fulfills all of that to your wildest dreams financially and otherwise. But the more you're into it, the more you're likely like, that's not exactly as feasible as people would think. There's not like, you know, a big botany overlord that's like, we're going to, here's your signing (laughs) bonus, here's your company car, (laughs) get a ski chalet (laughs) in the Swiss Alps for a couple weeks a year and uh, tell us if you want more. That doesn't really exist. And so, yeah, like the the pursuit of it, you, it's kind of a curse at times because you're like, people drive along every day to a job they're not thrilled with. They don't really have a pursuit. And so like life is okay. But if you have a pursuit, sometimes you're like, why do I care about this so much? Right. Yeah. There's definitely those days. Trust me. And I mean, to me, I've realized one thing I'm really starting to come to terms with is it is a job. You know what I mean? Like we, we did all this stuff. We do all this stuff to make a living to work, right? You have to work unless you're privileged enough to Mm -hmm. not have to, which is, you know, I'm not going to fault you for that either, but it's still work sometimes and work is a drag a lot of the time, right? There's a lot of elements of what they don't say. Like I hate going to conferences. I hate symposiums and stuff like that. Like to me, those are just such a waste of resources, but you kind of have to sometimes. And like, those are the part where you're like, ugh, not another one of these. I just want to be out in the woods. Oh yeah. I mean, you, I've, I think for the entire time I've been podcasting, I've always just waxed poetic about a quiet life in the woods because I, I think that the the struggle of food, water, and shelter and just staying alive, and that's easy to think about. And maybe if you are out and you know all the plants and trees and like it genuinely would be rewarding, <laughs> but I'm guessing there would be elements to it that would get a little monotonous and feel like, you know, it is nice to order Thai food every now and again. Or it is, yeah, you know. I don't, I don't want to think about how I'm going to stay warm during an ice storm, right? <laughs> I don't want to think about where my next meal is necessarily going to come from. I mean, not to say there haven't been weeks where you're like, oh, groceries, yikes. There's always ramen, right? But <laughs> you know, I the the older you get, at least for me, I do appreciate my creature comforts, and so I don't. I don't really romanticize that lifestyle as much as I once did back in the day. (laughs) Like I like having a partner. We enjoy going on vacations and like, you know, you kind of have to play the game sometimes to achieve that. Yeah. Again, unless you're privileged, which no, no judgment here. Right. Yeah. No, I, um, everyone as, as life goes along comes to grips with their own perceptions, their own preconceived kind of like, judgments you know things that like why did i dislike that so much some of those are put on you by you know a family ah this this guy's out there doing what you like i'm never gonna do that and then you get older like 
think that person was doing it pretty intelligently. I just had this preconceived notion that you should never do those things or I don't know. I just yeah. think that's always, always changing. Oh no, that is, I, I'm finally now again, out of grad school, out of academia, the grind of that. Like I have time to explore hobbies. And like, I remembered, I like motorsports. <laughs> I grew up with it in the house. I kind of was like, you don't like the things your parents like, but now I'm like on my own doing my own thing. And I'm like, Oh yeah. I, you know, I may not like combustion in the sense that what it's doing to the climate, but like, I can't help it. I love motorsports. I like watching cars race. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just going to bring more joy into my life by kind of giving into some of those things and, and, you know, kind of supporting the ones that are pushing the envelope, like formula E or something like that, or Dakar, the guy that just won the Dakar rally wanted in an electric vehicle. So like, you know, there's, there's cool things going on and I get to appreciate a field I'm not involved in whatsoever, like engineering and, and the performance side of things. Like it, to me, it's just fascinating and it doesn't make any difference when I go to bed at night. <laughs> Yeah, you were you you brought up uh, an oak that had a, a rhizome, and I was just thinking like there is an oak on our property, and if I had been digging near it and and traced a rhizome and just looked over and like this is you, old friend, it would have blown <laughs> my mind. I just like I, luckily when I did in any way encounter an oak root, it was exactly as I anticipated it to be, and that damn ivy had made a little bit of a run at it where I was like, come on, what do you think? Quit it. And the oak was Can just having have none enough? of it. Yeah. The, I mean, yeah. the oak was just laughing at it. You could tell it was just like, get out of here. It wasn't even close. Whereas, but I mean, the other trees like, that had slowly worked at, maybe given a long enough time frame, maybe the ivy could have like worked itself toward that oak. But I just, I don't see it, man. The oak tree, there's, there's a reason people are like, it's like an oak tree. They are tough. Yeah. Resilient, tough, stately, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna take more than a few sprigs of ivy to take it down. You know, now don't let it grow up and completely engulf the oak. Uh, you know, there's point of no return for some of that yeah. stuff, but yeah, you just be resilient like the oaks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And patient and all those things. Like if you need to, I mean, you're, I would guess even at those ramen times being just having access to nature so frequently, I mean, that's oh, such yeah. a calming thing just for humans. Yeah. Um, Jeff yeah, Tice I mean, was on this show. He's an artist. And he was like, oh, I've just been my whole life drawing a few hours every night. That's like what therapists tell you to do. And he's like, my mental health has always been great. I'm always in a pretty good mood. I think it's because I just draw all the time. And like, I wonder if that for you translates a little with nature. Oh, big time. And like, I will fully admit that I'm kind of like very objective. Uh, I'm not even kind of. Um, and so a lot of like the spiritual side of things I've always been very turned off by, but you know, I always kind of lumped meditation into that and just been like, eh, I don't need that kind of thing. Like I just had a very narrow vision of it. And then someone was describing sort of the, the state of mind that, that, that comes from meditation. I was like, oh, you mean hiking in the woods? <laughs> oh, okay. That's... Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, I, I agree. And like all through the pandemic, we lived in a rural enough area that like, we were fortunate enough to be able to get out and that made a world of difference. I think that's probably why a cabin in the woods is always such a dream is I've never been in a bad mood out in nature. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been like in my head thinking about stuff all mad and it just does something. And yeah, so like that's funny that your initial preconceptions about meditation, because it goes back to like that person having dinner and then the person with the keep Tahoe blue sticker and the type of car right. and like, oh, and then they meditate. I just dislike it in principle. 
there's just so many things like that that oh that person's been yeah, doing uh, them. we're all thing. guilty yeah yeah everyone's got their things just to kind of keep their head above water and if you don't have, i mean people work in cubicles and have like uv light you know natural light right <laughs> to to give them some oxytocin or i don't know what it does to your human brain but something to just like give you the slightest bit of dopamine to just keep you going which is a sad thought in itself of like people crammed into yeah. tiny living spaces commuting underground on a train going into an office clicking on a natural uv light lamp and then call, hey, everything's okay. I'm getting these little doses throughout the day. I'm just clicking away at this keyboard, seeing a lot of screens, liking a lot of things. I mean, that that seems like a a, a, a real negative version of humans going forward. And so like... Yeah. You know, there's... um, It's dated, and I will warn you. It's a dated book, but it's called The Human Zoo by Desmond Morris. He was a primatologist that at one point in his career just kind of turned his view onto humans and human behavior. And the human zoo is his kind of take on all the struggles we have as modern humans with like depression and mental illness and, you know, things that are, we're finally talking about in a productive way in some circles mm-hmm. um, really does stem from that. And it's, it's, it mirrors what he was seeing um, from animals in a zoo trapped, you know, removed from their environment and just put in this small, essential cage not to say zoos aren't a functional thing in conservation sometimes but um yeah it's again it's a very dated text it was written in i think the 70s but there's some kernels of ideas in there that you're like oh <laughs> crap and it's only gotten worse yeah I'm, i mean I, I could go off on a real tangent but it always comes up in talking about like neuroscience and addiction and like um rat park and how the rats didn't really push the button for like the cocaine and all that. And because they had community and they were, out, you know, in open spaces. And I think some elements of that have been debunked or, or at least challenged. Sure. But us, like on the surface, that makes sense to most people when they just hear or think about that because they go, oh, yeah, we, you know, having children now, I, a baby crying and crying and crying. Sometimes you just put them in this really warm, soft, comfortable little crib or bed or bassinet. They're not having it. You take them out, walk around, and they're just quiet, content, moving. <laughs> and I just think of like humans being nomads, desperately hoping to just oh, get off my feet. I'm so I'm carrying this baby, and like especially if a woman's like breastfeeding while walking, but the baby's quiet, so you don't have to worry about predators. Yeah. And the whole time you're thinking, oh, we just man, imagine having like a big, really safe shelter that was comfortable and a bed. And then the baby gets there and is like, not at all, not interested. Let's nope. get back to moving. <laughs> so there's something yeah. in us that, same thing with nature, there is something still there that as much as we try to, I'm shopping online and having a thing driv- delivered to me by drone. We're humans, we're modern. Inside, there's still this little primitive thing. It's like, I need to see some trees move in the wind or whatever. Oh, yeah, we're not that far removed. It's <laughs> it's Again, it's another reason to kind of sit back and still kind of admire our species for you know, the core of what it is and what it's achieved. But yeah, we're, we stood up and did this like 300,000 years ago and it's been a short amount of time to <laughs> not pretend we're not animals. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matt, what a treat, man. This is good. How did you finish your uh, Tate's Hells? Um, I'm towards the end here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I did it justice. Yeah, likewise, man. Some at some point we'll have to do this in person. I have this new studio yeah, here, so if you ever if you ever find yourself this way, or if I'm in the the south, I'll look you up so we can uh, 
share a beer in person, but I, I really I always enjoy chatting. I'm glad we did this again and yeah, hope man. we, we do it again sometime and keep Agreed. We, next time you have a grant or a new project. Um, I follow you on all the stuff, so I'll, I'll be up to speed, but I think I reached out to you at one point with a photograph of a, a, a flower I saw. And not yeah, only did you reply, I remember that. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. And then like, not only did you reply, but a lot of your followers were chiming <laughs> in with, and that was really fun. It was like, it was like this whole community that I had, uh, yeah. engaged with. So that was really neat. Generally a pretty good audience. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I don't know. I really sparked to that when Pete, when it was all positive, all c- contributing, all, uh, just of, of an interest, not like trying to outdo each other or, um, <laughs> actually it was, There's it wasn't any of that. I'm sure there was <laughs> bound to be some of that, but from what I saw, it was just genuine, like, Hey, I'm glad you're a curious human. I think people that know stuff like when they encounter a curious human. And I think Curious people really appreciate when they run into someone who knows a lot of stuff. So in this situation, I know you do your own podcast, but I really appreciate uh, a knowledgeable person spending a little time chatting. Oh, of course. No, it's a pleasure. I'm really honored you wanted to have me back. You know, it's a good experience <laughs> for you. But uh, no, again, you're you're a smart, creative type and all the content you're putting out into the world is valuable and, and I enjoy it. And, you know, keep it up, man. And I'm glad we get to share these moments. Thanks a lot, dude. I really appreciate that. Well, Matt Candeus, a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Well, we'll maybe have him back again. I hope. I, you know, I've I've been doing, I've been making an effort to to reach out to people from the past of the show. Uh, and if you have a guest that you thought was a great uh, visit and you would like to hear another conversation, let me know. Uh, I really appreciate when people do reach out and say, hey, I know someone that's knowledgeable about this because it's uh, it's time consuming and, and it can be a little deflating if you reach out to people and you don't hear anything or and or they're like, who are you? So it's a connectivity element. There's a community involved and you're a part of it. So if you reach out, if you know somebody, I'm happy to chat with them. I really like doing this podcast. I like these conversations. Really enjoyed this one with Matt. Enjoyed the Simpler Times Logger. Try his as well. Um, try to share a photo of that. That can be found on the Patreon, but I'll usually at the website, spacecave.com, photos of the guests. Um, I think that's it for this episode. Thanks to those of you who do support the show. Uh, yeah, the spacecave.com, pings at the spacecave.com. If you have suggestions or requests, beer, music, otherwise, and, uh, there's, Social media, Space Cave is pretty poorly represented on, I think, all of them. I don't keep up with them as well as I'd like to and or should, and I just, uh, it gets overwhelming. So if you're really active on one of those sites, you're like, hey, I want to see it, let me know and I'll make an episode. So far, very quiet community. A lot of introverts listening to the Space Cave, and that I can uh, identify with. So I will I will attempt to assume what you might enjoy, and then I'll add those things to the best of my ability. But anyway, thank you for listening. Let's get out of here. This is a song called Silver Shoes. It's by Akira Galaxy. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the space. Game.